Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to see everyone today uh, for the first time in a while. Let's say hi to the Hessels. Uh, I know they listen to us on the uh, recording. So we are missing the Hessels today. But uh, everyone is in the room today, except for the Hessels who are smartly in Florida. <laughs> but we miss them and look forward to seeing them when it warms up. It, as uh, Deacon Jan said, it's 34 days till Passover. Uh, Passover and Night to Be will be down here in this room. Uh, um, it was uh, certainly, uh, before we get started, it was uh, certainly a godsend that he sent us here um, the day after Two weeks, two weeks ago tomorrow, when we found out that uh, at that point it was we need to start looking for a place. It was obviously last Sabbath that they had to pull the plug on us. Uh, but we found out two weeks ago that it was coming soon. They just didn't know when. So we had uh, always had our eye on this place. Just I mean, it's here. We were driving by it all the time. So we stopped in and had mentioned uh, that we were from a church needing a place to meet. And the gentleman who is the manager of the place is an Egyptian Coptic Christian. And we know how much... Uh, they're going through over in uh, in their homeland right now, and he could not he couldn't give us enough. Uh, he was just so happy that a church was coming here, and um, uh, Jan and Ever were with me. Uh, we were together, and he uh, was uh, he basically we mentioned church, and then uh, we didn't don't think we spoke much after that. It was it was pretty much uh, he's planning on giving us a storage space and all that sort of stuff. And we'll get into that as we sort of hopefully become uh, a little more permanent here. But it is uh, 34 days until Passover, so that uh, uh, with all of us traveling and, and winter getting in the way, we haven't really done a whole lot of planning, so we need to uh, talk about uh, Passover and the night to be at some point real soon, maybe uh, after lunch, maybe during uh, lunch today. Kurt Browning was a four-time world figure skating champion for Canada in the 1980s and 90s. Four times he won the world championship. Yet during the Olympics, he came eighth, sixth, and fifth. His world championships actually surrounded the Olympics. So he was a world champion before the Olympics. He was a world champion after the Olympics. But when it came time for the big show, every single time he fell. Elvis Stoiko, if you recall that name, he came after Kurt Browning. He was a three-time world figure skating champion. Yet during the Olympics, he finished second twice, seventh and eighth, but never won gold during the Olympics. Jeremy Wotherspoon is an eight-time gold medal winner in the World Championships of Speed Skating for Canada. Eight times he won gold at various world championship races. Yet he only ever placed a second once in the Olympics. If you're an Olympic fan, you'll recall he was one of the our hopefuls year after year that continued to just let us, let us down during the Olympics. Whether he fell or just couldn't, uh, couldn't get the speed that he was used to. He was a world record holder, several multi-gold winners during the world championships, yet placed second during the Olympics. In 1988, during the Calgary Games, I was uh, 17, and it was the first real Olympic Games in, in our homeland. I was too young for the Montreal Olympics. There's an American speed skater by the name of Dan Jansen, who was a multiple world record holder, held several gold medals and world championships. Yet on the morning of his first Olympic race, his sister died of leukemia. He skated on because he wanted to win the gold medal for her. But as he rounded the first corner, he fell, and his Olympic dreams in that race were dashed. The following week, he competed in another race, he got through most of the race, but on the last lap, he fell again. This is a multiple gold-winning skater, multiple world record holder, yet in the Olympics, he continued to fall. Four years later, he finished fourth and 26th in his two big races, having been the world record holder and the gold medal champion. Two years later, you recall in 1992 to 94, they went to the Olympics for winter and summer being in the same year to being an offsetting two years. So they had the Olympics two years later in 1994. He finished eighth, 
And then in his final race before retirement, he actually claimed his elusive gold medal. But for the most part, up until that last race, he was a world champion record holder who could never do it in the Olympics. They trained their entire lives for Olympic glory. We recall Ben Johnson, who actually got Olympic glory and then had it snatched away because he was caught. And evidence shows over the course of time that he was just one of everybody who was doing the same thing. He just happened to be caught. They trained their entire lives for Olympic glory. Everyone works for the Olympics. World championships are great, but we don't know these guys for their world championships. We remember who wins the Olympic gold. We remember Bruce Jenner from 1976. Well, we remember Bruce Jenner for other things now, but we remember him for winning the decathlon in 1976. We remember Ben Johnson in 1988. We remember the U.S. hockey team in 1980. It's Olympic lawyer that drives success to an athlete. These folks that we mentioned failed to come through in the clutch. Sure, they won other competitions, but never the Olympics. How could they train their entire lives for those special moments and not come through? They had dreams of being a glorified Olympic champion. They had dreams of probably wealth and fame and riches that come along with it. Some countries, like the United States and China, they, they're... They're much more well-off than any of us could ever hope to be just by winning Olympic gold. But now it would only be remembered for falling when it counted most. Again, we don't remember these gentlemen, unless you're, unless you're a sports trivia nut, you don't remember them for their world championships. You remember them for what they didn't do in the Olympics. Because that was not how it was supposed to be. They were supposed to have trained their entire lives to win gold when it counted. It was not how it was supposed to be. The multiple world champions, every single one of them, but they failed when it happened most, and that was not how it was supposed to have gone. What about us today? We're starting our third year, as Pastor Adrian mentioned, and... It seems, it seemed to me, this, this might be a personal sermon, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but actually in talking to several people today, how have you been doing, we kind of all agree we've been a little bit in a malaise. Winter's been long. Um, we haven't been together with, with, what we're, with what we're up against and sharing some leadership and, and, and sharing our leaders. We're traveling. Weather has kept us apart. This is the first time, except for, again, as I mentioned, the households who are in Florida, this is the first time they're actually all in the same room in several, several weeks. Winter has been long. It's been cold. It's been, and several people have asked, how are you doing? And everyone's going, ah, well, it's, we're kind of feeling blasé, a little bit of a malaise. At least I feel it. And in talking to, maybe you don't, but I know some of you do because you told me, you told me today that you're feeling in a bit of a malaise. We started out two years ago on a high. And last week, we were kicked out of our what we thought was our home. That was not how this was supposed to go. We weren't supposed to be finding a place and starting over and figuring out where we were going to be down here and how we are going to set up and what are we going to do. We were supposed to be two years into building this church in Burlington. And yet, here we are, the same 25 of us, a year later, I'm not sure this is how we had this, had how we had this planned. That's not to say this is not where we need to be, but in our human minds, sometimes we get ahead of ourselves, and we've developed a bit. I have. I'll speak for myself. Have developed a bit of malaise during this cold, long winter. Work is long. We're all. We, we talk about how much we're working. We're talking about how much we want to be together. How much we want to spend time together. Yet, apart from Sabbath, we don't. And I can't tell you how happy I am to see everybody here today. I really needed this today because this week was a personally a very, very tough week. And perhaps I'm speaking for myself with this sense of, of blasé or malaise. The sense of the winter blas that we get as we're coming, hopefully, to the end of this cold stretch. I haven't seen it this cold in, in our region for this long in a long, long time. I remember when I was a kid in the 70s, it was cold like this. But I thought, uh, I thought we had scientific proof that things were warming up. <laughs> And I don't personally see it. But again, we've just been ousted from our regular meeting hall through no fault of our own. 
one that seemed like it was so perfect for us. It was called the lighthouse. We were so happy to have gotten it. We had the upstairs, the downstairs. It was going to be where we were going to have the centerpiece of our evangelism, and people were going to come from miles around to come hear God and, 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 and see this congregation. We've come through a very challenging year as an organization where we've lost some leadership and we're reconfiguring our leadership. Locally, our, our public Bible study series, while it was beneficial for us and brought us carry, for which we're grateful, we probably had designs that it was going to be a lot bigger and more impactful than what it was. Personally, that's what, that, that's, that's what I thought. And it didn't happen. And I'm not trying to point out the negative. I'm trying to convey my sense of feeling of why, uh, why we may be feeling the way we're feeling. Uh, um, we want to get together. We have, have this great social network that we do, but life gets so busy during the week that we simply, we simply are back to getting together on the Sabbath. And we extend it into the night. Our kids are great for that, for keeping us together with us socializing. And, and we've, we've tried our best to, to meet when we can. It's been a long, cold winter. Even our locals, even most of us haven't been able to be out every week. We've got folks that come from London that simply can't come when it's snowy. It doesn't make sense. And from Wellington, can't come when it's snowy. It doesn't make sense. We've got leaders who, last week we were in Ottawa. It was great to be in Ottawa, but at Kitchener in Ottawa, and, and when we serve in London and all these places, I miss being here. So when I came here today and saw everybody here, it has absolutely lifted my spirits. We have uh, the Hessels in Florida, uh, Marilyn and Michelle, not just being in London, but battled health issues, both personal and, and Marilyn's mother way up north. Others who may have come more often have been affected by the weather. And here we sit, our third meeting place in two years. And the momentum, maybe it's just me, maybe it is just me, but the momentum seems to have sort of stopped. This wasn't how we thought it was supposed to be. So as we embark on our third year, I want to take a look at where we are and with encouraging examples from Scripture, remind us that this is exactly where we are supposed to be. We are exactly where we're supposed to be. Because others have felt this way. Others have felt the, the sense of, of, I thought this was going to be different. Let's go to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. And if I'm speaking just to myself today, forgive me for that. Um, um, maybe you can learn a little bit along the way as I've dug into the scriptures to, to maybe help me pull out of my sense of winter blahs. Exodus chapter 14. Verse 11. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. These are folks by way of reminder, that just went through months, weeks, months, and perhaps a year of witnessing the ultimate in miracles. The ultimate in, as Pastor Adrian talked about, the, the strong arm of Nimrod in the person of Pharaoh. And God got them out of that. And not only did he get them out of it, he used their own gods to get them out of it. When no one else would ever think of, 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 of going against Nimrod, and within days, we're in a state of whining and complaining. Chapter 15. This wasn't something that was, that was akin to one moment in time. They cross the Red Sea. They break out into song in chapter 15, praising their God who overcame Pharaoh, this great song this, this, where they broke out in music and dance and, and instruments. In verse 22, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea 
Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, where he made it cast it, where he cast it, when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Dropping down to chapter 16 of verse 1. This was within a week, this crossing of the Red Sea, of, the, of their, of their uh, the Red Sea was approximately the last day of unleavened bread, which was a week after Passover. Three days into this, they complained about water. So we're about 10 days into their journey. With chapter 16, they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, so a month later after they departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then finishing up chapter 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out, on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? And why do you tempt the Lord? So here we see people who had their eyes set on something more than God had intended for them. People who had their eyes set on, I'm not sure what they were expecting, But the hard life, they weren't. And when it came clear that it was going to be a little tougher than they had imagined, they said they couldn't stop complaining. That this is not how it was supposed to be. We were supposed to come out of Egypt and be free. And freedom means ease. Freedom means a life of ease. Freedom means I don't have to do... I've I've spent my whole life in servitude. Freedom means I don't have to serve. Freedom means I don't have to do anything. This was not how you expect me to, this is worse. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know where my next meal is going to, at least I knew, as bad as it was, where my meal was going to come from. This was not how it was supposed to be. First Kings chapter 19. come to the prophet Elijah. On the heels of his victory at Mount Carmel, which you find in chapter 18, where in chapter 18, he went through it all by himself. He was against all the the prophets of Ahab and Baal and all those who worshipped Baal. And God provided Elijah victory. We know that story. So picking up the story after that, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in, went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. 
and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. What are you asking? What are you doing? You should know. I'm the only one out here fighting for you. Of all the people, I'm the only one out here doing this. I'm all alone. I was alone back at Carmel, but you came through for me. But I'm all alone fighting this fight. Then he said, go out, verse 11, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, and he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Word for word, the exact same complaint. So obviously this has been bothering him. He's alone. I work in the trucking industry. You have truckers on the road by themselves all day and all night. They can come back with a lot of complaints because you have a lot of time on your own to focus on the negative. And here, Elijah clearly was bothered by the fact that he thought he was by himself and that he was the only one involved in this fight for God. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over, over Syria. And also, you, and also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet... I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah has spent his life fighting for God, and yet felt like he was in this by himself. So much so that any free time God asked him, what are you doing here? He didn't say what he was doing there. He kept saying, I'm by myself. There's no one here to help me. And in his mind, that was not how it was supposed to be. I'm a prophet of God. Everyone should be listening. And everyone should be turning turning and following you. Why else would he give up his life to work for God? Yet God here had to remind him, you're not alone. As much as you feel alone, as much as you feel this wasn't how it should have been, there are thousands out there, thousands out there doing the same thing as you, working for me. Job chapter 10. Job chapter 10. A couple of years ago, Pastor Adrian gave a very detailed study on the book of Job. I just want to touch on one small passage here that really encapsulates Job's utter confusion as he goes through the process of learning that God is in complete control of his life if we only humbly submit ourselves to his will. As Job is learning this, as Job is trying to figure out that he's not all that, that, God, that he still is in the growing process, that there's still much more God needs him to do. Verse 1 of Job 10, and we could have chosen any number of passages in Job, but we'll just look here. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress? That you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked, and there's no other, hand, no other, there's no one who can deliver from your hand. Your hands have made me and fashioned me, an intricate unity. Yet you would destroy me. So we can see Job's confusion. We won't go any further. We can see Job's confusion as he's all caught up in himself, as he's all caught up in the way he thought it was supposed to be. Yet in his confusion and his his immaturity and his lack of understanding that God is always in charge. 
that as he's learning this, he's telling God this wasn't the way it was supposed to go. I don't get this. I don't get why I thought it was going to go a certain way, and it's going this way. Because that wasn't how it was supposed to be. Habakkuk. Let's go to Habakkuk. We've got a couple more examples before we turn this around. Habakkuk. I need to hear how long it takes us to find little places like Habakkuk. It's not in your Bible. (laughs) It's only a couple of pages. Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you of violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and be utterly astounded. Let's stop there. Let's stop at verse 4. And we'll just contemplate what Habakkuk is saying. He's talking to God and he can't figure out why God is letting stuff go on. Why he is trying hard, why God's people are trying hard. At least those that he sees that are, are following the law. Yet God is allowing others who aren't following his law to have more success, to not be the recipients of the, ju- of the righteous judgment that they deserve. And he's astounded. He can't figure out. He's living his life the proper way, yet he's not reaping any of the benefits. He's not seeing the justice that he thought should happen. So God replies in verse 5, Look among the nations and watch, and be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told to you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. And he goes into, we won't take the time there, to go and describe these people, the Chaldeans. To which Habakkuk, we know, responds in verse 12, You're going to what? You're going to do what? You're going to use them to teach your people a lesson? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person, when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no rule over them? You're going to do what? With whom? You're going to take that evil nation and teach your people a lesson? You're not going to punish them, but you're actually going to use them and bless them enough to teach your your people a lesson? For the life of me, this is not how it was supposed to be. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. John chapter 21. John 21. We come to the Last story in John. After Christ is resurrected, he is spending his days with the disciples before Pentecost. They go through the fishing story, which we know. The disciples just took off and went fishing. and They couldn't catch any fish, so Christ allowed them to catch fish, used this as a lesson for them, invoked Peter's attention with the feed my lambs, with his commission to to his church to feed the sheep. Then in verse 18, after he gets Peter's attention, gets his commitment to to feeding the sheep, he then drops a bomb on him. They've just spent three and a half years following him around, learning from him. 
expecting, as we know, the kingdom to come. It's got, he's, he's died, he's resurrected, the kingdom has to come now. And then he drops a bomb on him. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So I know what you're thinking, but there's going to come a time when you're going to go through exactly what I went through. But your, your commission is to follow me. And when you do, this is what you're up against. You've committed to me. We agree that you've committed. This is what you're going to be up against. And Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, and said, Lord, who is the one that betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about him? What about him? And Jesus said to him, if I will, that he will remain till I come. What is that to you? You follow me. You're expecting me to go through what he just went through, what you just went through? You're expecting me eventually to go through what you just went through? I've spent three and a half years following you around, expecting that when you die and are resurrected, the kingdom is going to come back and we will have a life of ease. And now you're telling me, i got to do what just happened to you? Okay, every, okay everybody's got to go through this now then. It's not just me, right? It's, everyone is going to have to go through this. And Christ said, not necessarily. You have to follow me. To Peter, that clearly wasn't how it was supposed to have been. That's not how this was supposed to go. Christ was supposed to be resurrected, come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords, have the, have the kingdom on earth. We don't have to be under Roman rule anymore. That was how it was supposed to be. It didn't take long. Acts chapter 1, they still didn't understand that what they, the way they thought it was going to go wasn't the way it was going to go. And being assembled together, verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall not be baptized, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Wasn't that made pretty clear over three and a half years that, that's, that he wasn't going to restore the kingdom? Yet they couldn't see that. They had their mind set on something the way they thought the plan was going to go, the way they thought the story was written. They come to almost upon, upon Pentecost, and it's like, okay, enough now. It, it, the kingdom's coming now, right? Stop messing around. Stop playing with our minds. The kingdom's it's, it's coming now, right? And Christ said, not telling, not telling you when it's coming. Not only am I, isn't this the way it's going to go, I'm not even telling you when it's going to come. And that's not how they thought it was going to go. That's not how they thought it was going to go. Now, these are extreme, extreme examples of people who got caught up in their own in their own conditions, the Israelites, Elijah, Job, Habakkuk, Peter, and the 12 apostles, and got confused because they thought they had it all worked out. We're going through a little bit of winter malaise. I'm going through a little bit of winter malaise. It's cold. We don't see any, we don't see any sun. We're all working too hard. We're not spending enough time together. We're not doing what we thought we were going to do. We thought we'd be doing a lot more evangelizing, a lot more a lot more bringing people together, and time is against us, our work schedules are against us, life is against us, and it, the bomb was dropped on us that we're moving just before Passover. What are we going to do about Passover? What are we going to do about the Holy Days? But God provides us instantly a spot. We all go to him together, and he finds us the very first spot that he guides us to. But this wasn't the way it was supposed to go. But that's what Satan is looking for. Satan is looking for our weaknesses. Satan is looking for us to drop our guard and to focus on ourselves. Matthew chapter 4. 
That's what he tried with Christ in the stories of the temptations. He was trying to catch him off guard when he was weak and get him to compromise. And we see that. Verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, now recall there are multiple examples of where Christ shows how human he was, that he felt his humanity. When he wanted, and we'll get to that a little bit later, when he wanted to give, it, give this up and have God find another way. So he was, as much as he was the Son of God, and as much as he, his will was aligned with his Father, the human part of him was human in every way. And he felt every day and night of this 40-day fast. And when the tempter came to him, verse 2, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. This is a perfect opportunity to capitalize on someone who would be completely absorbed with their own condition and succumb to the worship of Satan, much like what Pastor Adrian was talking about today with Pharaoh and the, all the, the world's religions all stem off of choosing Satan over God. It's, the story of the Bible is so simple, yet so complex because of, because of ourselves. The Bible itself, when we boil it all down, is very, very simple. We choose God or we work against God. It's, it's, it's no more basic than that. And here's an opportunity that Satan took to try to capitalize on the, on the weakness of Jesus Christ, who had not eaten in 40 days. 40 days. We come home from work, and if supper's not ready, we'll, we'll, we'll eat anything. But Christ responded with the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can hit me with my weakness, but I'm going to stand by my strength, which is the word of God. Then the devil took him up, verse 5, into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Again, appealing to human vanity. Christ was human. Surely Satan thinks I can appeal to his vanity. He's at a weak point. He hasn't eaten. He's refused to eat, so he's going to continue to be weak. Maybe I can appeal to his human nature, to his vanity. But Christ, again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You may bring, you may, you may bring scripture to me out of context, I will reply in context. I will use it properly. You can throw stuff at me, pull stuff out and say, this is what the Bible says. I'm going to push back and show you this is what the Bible actually says. Use it properly. Verse 8, again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Perhaps he'll forget that he gave them to me. Perhaps in his weakness, he'll forget that I got them from him. He created them and sent me here. If I can just capitalize on his weakness, maybe he will worship. Because that's, as we heard in the Bible study, that's what he's been trying to do, is to get everybody to leave the Father and follow Satan. And if he could get the Son of God to forget, to, to succumb to him in his, state, in his weakened state, to follow him, then he's one. And Jesus said to him, verse 10, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, trying to capitalize when we are weak to get us to compromise. And we have the example of our Savior here who refused to give in, who refused to, to succumb to his weaknesses, to refuse to give in when he was feeling weak. Matthew 26.
falling on the heels of the Passover. Verse 36, Jesus came with them to a place, a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. So all the disciples follow him. And he, he says, okay, stay here. With him now, further along, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. So the disciples came with him. They're here. He moves along. The three, his three closest friends come with him. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. So we see his humanity here. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. I'm scared and I'm weak. And I'm sad. I'm sad for what, why I'm going through this. I'm sad that this didn't need to be. For whatever reason, here, he is sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So part of the group is here. Three of them are here, and then he goes off on his own. He went a little farther, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to them, Could you not watch with me one hour? You could. I'm going through the most important event in the history of mankind, and you couldn't stay awake one hour to be with me, to help me through. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, Unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? You're still sleeping? I'm going through the most important event in history, and you can't even hold my hand through this? Because he was weak. He was a human being who was in a weak spot who needed some strength around him. He knew how important this was. He knew what he wanted to do, but he needed his friends around him to account for his humanity as he sought another way, as he sought God's will that perhaps there was an easier way to do this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. we see the end of his last letter here to Timothy. Paul recaps here what has been a somewhat lonely experience as an apostle, as one who has been placed into his office by Jesus Christ himself, and he's coming to the end of his life, and he's recounting the loneliness of what he has gone through. Be diligent, he said to Timothy, verse 9, to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Tros when you come and the books, especially the parchments. So we can see here he's got some final instructions, but he's really focused on these everyone who's left. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must also be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our works. And at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. All that I've done for the group, for God, for his people, and what he was feeling was that everyone forsook him. I don't think they did. Clearly, Timothy was still with them. Mar uh, Luke was with them. But the human feeling, when you're up against it, when you see more negative than good, is the feeling that everyone forsook him. And I'm not disputing what Paul wrote here. He said everyone forsook him. But we can see his humanity coming out here, where he's focusing on all of these folks that have left him. And may it not be charged against him. But we notice his faith and his strength which was, which was one of his, his 
most admirable attributes. Because despite what is being listed here as this, this lonely experience, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, verse 17, so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all Gentiles might hear. It may feel to me as a human being that everyone has left me, that I'm all on my own in this, but God was right there with me and God kept me strong because I had a message to bring for him. And I wanted, and he needed, the people needed, and I wanted the message to be fully preached so that I don't focus on what seems to be the negative, but we're going to focus on the positive, and that is that God has been with me every step of the way. And all that the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. And to him, sorry, to him be glory forever and ever. Dropping back to verse 4. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you will be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Here we see what he's really trying to do is to encourage Timothy. That there will be times when he will feel weak. There will be times when he feels alone. There will be times when he will question who's with him. But to follow Paul as he follows Christ and to realize that God is with us every step of the way. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. And what is my focus? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is a laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all those who have loved is appearing. So I may feel alone. I may feel that Demas left me, Cretans left me, Titus left me. I've got Luke. We're going to hopefully go find Mark. Tychicus is gone. Carpus is gone. Alexander's gone. But God's been here. And I know God's been with others. And together we will lay hold of that crown. And together we will move forward. Despite what he feels. Let's go back to Matthew 26. We just left there. I want to remind us of how that story ended. We reviewed three times. He brought all the disciples with him. He left eight of them, it seems, in one spot. Three more came closer. And he went off to be with God. Three times, three times he asked God, there has to be another way. I know this is how it was supposed to go, but is there any other way? Three times. And when it was clear, when it was clear, verse 45, we stopped in the middle of verse 45, when he came back to them the third time and said, are you sleeping and resting? His mission was clear. Behold, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go my betrayer is ahead. Clearly, this is the way it is supposed to be. So let's go. Let's not worry about the pain. Let's not worry about the sorrow. Let's not worry about how it could have been. This is the way it was supposed to go. So let's go. Reminds, reminds me of that famous story. A lot of young people might not be familiar because it's been 15 years, 14 years since the downing of the, uh, the, the towers on 9-11. But recall that plane, Flight 93, the third plane that went down, where uh, folks like, uh, I think his name was Todd Beamer, was the, was the gentleman who got credit for that statement. Um, there was the, they had realized that uh, the, the uh, terrorists had taken over the, the cockpit. So they had been shuffled to the back of the plane. Everyone was on their phones trying to get in touch with their family, finding out that uh, two towers had already been stricken and were down. And clearly this plane had done a, a U-turn. And they were, it was already on the news, so they were finding out that this was something, something bad was going to happen. They clearly were going somewhere. And they decided together at the back of that plane that they were going to storm that plane and put it into the ground, sacrifice their own lives for the lives of wherever this was going, whether it was going to be the White House or the Capitol building. So they called their families. They called where they could. They got in touch with their families. This uh, gentleman, Todd Beamer, who was uh, a, a 
youth pastor in his church and, and had uh, uh, in, into gospel music, had called, couldn't get a hold of his wife, so he got a hold of this lady on the emergency 911 line and had said the Lord's Prayer with her, had recited the Lord is my shepherd, and then together they realized what they had to do. There was no time, and his words were famously, let's roll. Let's roll. We've tried to come up with everything. We've tried to come up with any other plan. Our mission is clear. Let's roll. And that's what Christ said here. Father, can we find another way? Can we, three times, can we find another way? I know this is how it was supposed to go, but let's find another way. The answer is no. Okay, folks, let's go. Let's roll. My betrayers at hand, it is time to make history. What about us here as we enter our third year together? And it hardly seems like it's been two whole years since we came together. But as we look back, it kind of seems like it's been two years. We've been at the Holiday Inn. We were, we were, uh, we've had two Passovers together already. Coming up on our third, Acts chapter 2. There's a lot to be done this year. We're going into our third year. But what is our hallmark? We have our roadmap that we came up with. That It's been a while since we referred to it. We need to look at it again as we, as we try to align it with the Canadian roadmap. But we can't forget the goals that we touched on together, that we came, that we came together to create this roadmap for ourselves. When we said that we wanted to accomplish for God the following, to be ready to receive and nourish new Christians and further develop mature Christians. To be ready to receive because we can't control who walks in the door. But whenever somebody walks through the door, we must be ready to receive them and incorporate them into our community. To provide a place where every believer feels safe and valued. To come to the unity of the faith. So not just to come to the faith, but to come to it together. And we've really developed an understanding of this sense of community, this sense of togetherness. It's why we... Feel so, we feel so edified when we come together on a Sabbath day that we need to be together, that we need to be together. To become mature in the stature and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Think back over the last two years as to what we have come through in our learning and our understanding. The timeline of the Bible that seems so clear, not just to us, but to our youth. And we saw them at the feast lead the way in, in understanding that timeline. Understanding the value of community. Understanding the law. We're now coming into understanding how important God is and how detailed Satan is in trying to bring us down through various aspects of homosexuality, of Islam, of false religion, of, of, of pornography, of, of anything that distracts us from being true to God and how detailed that we're coming to those understandings. The details of the holy days that we're coming to understand more and more. The studies that we've done of the book of Hebrews, of the book of 1 Corinthians, and how, how much we've learned together, how much we've come together on this. That is becoming mature in the stature and knowledge of Jesus Christ. How much more we understand about putting on the mind of Christ over these last two years. To have close ties with the rest of God's church. We put on a piece of tabernacles and we included everyone. And it didn't matter. It wasn't a CGI site. It wasn't a CGI Burlington site. It was God's Feast of Tabernacles. And whoever came felt edified to be there. And God did that with us together. To have Bible-based leadership and relationships. How much more we understand what true relationships are. The value of marriage in our lives. The value of family. The value of community. And to become a model Christian community. Are we all the way there yet? We're not all the way there yet. Who could be? But God has accomplished a lot in two years to prepare us for that next step. Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon that on Pentecost that leads to 
so many souls, so many people giving their lives to God. Then those, verse 41, who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's the way it was supposed to be. That's the way we wanted it to be. We wanted 3,000 souls. But guess what? We've got 25. We've got 25. And we've got 25 who have come a long way together in what we said we wanted to do for God. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. We're a lot better in fellowship than we used to be. We are a lot better in prayer than we used to be. We are a lot better in the breaking of bread than we used to be. And we were good at that. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We've come together, and apart from our tithes that we sent to London, we've been fairly self-sufficient. We've, through the, the, the giving nature of our understanding of the community and, and our love for each other, we have, we have developed a congregation that is fairly self-sufficient in, 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 in what we have, we have contributed to each other here. That is what we read about in having all things in common and providing where anyone has need. When folks have suffered, people have offered to, we have come together. We all, we all showed up on the coldest day of the year for a half-hour funeral because that's what we do. That's what we do. Because what happens to one of us happens to all of us. We are a lot further along. We have had a great two years. Not to say that we can't do more, and that's coming. But we are prepared now to do more. And it is to this type of atmosphere that God can add daily to his church. Next week we will have Pastor Jordan tell to prepare us for those next steps, to prepare us in the next steps for our evangelism program. As we become more comfortable in sharing what is so special here, because if we just keep it here, it has little value to God. We've, we are strong, we are, we are united, we, we are, have grown, but we need to take this and we need to share this, because that is what shining your light is all about. That is what the rivers of living water do. They don't stagnate. They don't stay under a bucket. They don't stay under a barrel. It is to be shared. And we're going to hear a lot more of this, our next step in becoming a congregation that evangelizes. And I concur with Pastor Adrian. In fact, we talked about it upstairs. We need to become more comfortable doing that. It's, it's, not, in, it's not in my nature either, like it should be, to just openly share what we know to be true. Satan called, you've heard the story before, but it bears repeating as we lead into our third year, as we lead into the next steps in our congregation, as we prepare for the spring holy days, as we prepare for next steps. Satan called a worldwide convention of demons. And in his opening address, he said, we can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and from knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate relationship with their Savior. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to their churches. Let them have their covered dish dinners. But steal their time. Steal their time. So they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That is what I want you to do, said the devil. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How should we do this? His demons shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spend. Tempt them to spend, spend, spend. And borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six to seven days each week, 10 to 12 hours a day, so that they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. And as their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot bear to be still. So they cannot hear that still small voice. Entice them to play the radio. This is written a little while ago because it says the radio or cassette player. For those of you young, that's this little plastic thing that you'd stick into a little thing and it'd get all messed up and the tape would come out and you'd have to get your pencil out and rewind it in. And you still do that. Entice them to play their Xboxes, their DVD players, their iPods, and anything else I don't really know what it is with hashtags all over it. To keep the TV, their VCR or DVD player, their CDs and their PCs going constantly in their home and see to it that every store and restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their minds and break that union with Christ. Fill the coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail. Mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and promotion offering free products, services, and false hopes. Give them Santa Claus to distract them from teaching their children the real meaning of Christ. Give them an Easter bunny so they won't talk about his resurrection and power over sin and death. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted. Keep them too busy to go out into nature and to reflect on God's creation. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, plays, concerts, and movies instead. But keep them busy, busy, busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave with troubled consciences. Crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Jesus. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause. It will work. It will work. It was quite a plan. And the demons went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get busy and more rushed, going here and there, having little time for their God or for their families and friends, and having no time to tell others about the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. To change lives. First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. Wrap this up. Verse 11, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this command without blot, without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing which he will manifest in his own time. 
he who is blessed and only he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. That, in essence, is our mission. To fight the good fight, no matter what comes against us. We may, the manager may come back from his, his, his uh, conference, and we may have no place to meet next week. That may happen. We didn't think this would happen. That place we had was perfect. It was, it was the way it was supposed to be. And here we are. But here we are still together, two years later, entering our third year with much more to do. To fight the good fight, to lay hold of eternal life, to not let go and to share it with others. We've held on well together. We've built community. We have grown together. We've grown individually, but we've grown together. We have come a long way in fulfilling the goals that we felt God set out for ourselves but we now need to share that. We now need to get busy doing God's work. There's much to be done this year and in the years ahead, but we've really come a long way in these last two years. We are, we are much different. We are much closer to the mind of Christ now than we were two years ago. And when we stop to think about it, we'll find that we'll come to the exact same conclusion that Moses came to, that Elijah came to, that Habakkuk came to, that John came to, that Job came to, that Peter came to, and the apostles came to, that this is exactly where we are supposed to be. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.